Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 42 of the podcast, the topic is business beyond buzzwords. Our guest is Jeff Immelt, venture partner at NEA and former CEO of General Electric, or GE. In this conversation, we talk about Jeff Immelt's new book, Hot Seat, running a top-tier manufacturing business, industrial tech, the impact of globalization, plant innovation, workforce training, global supply chain, virtual cloud connected value streams and what is possible to do today and what was even difficult a few years ago with the myriad of non-integrated enterprise IT and ERP systems and other challenges. Lastly, we discuss how industry will evolve in this decade. Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Trung Arne Undheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG.works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Jeff, how are you today? Good, John. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm excited. So you've uh, you've written a book. I've, I've read the book. I uh, know quite a few things about you. You were... I would say, uh, I don't know, unusually open for a business book. You, you shared some things. I know you have a tattoo. That's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, you know, I never really set out to write a business book. I, I think, uh, uh, you know, so I decided to write one really for two reasons. One, one is I, I was just unhappy with the narrative around the company and I felt like a more complete story needed to be told. And Yeah, and well, you... You you did tell a, a pretty yeah. complete story. I I want to start a little. Uh, I I sure. guess earlier uh, in or early in that story. I mean, there are many things to talk about with you, but you know, you started as a mathematician, and and the reason I know that is not just you know that's public knowledge, but you yeah. you brought in uh, you know various theorems in you know in into this book and uh, and stuff. So that was cool. And then you went to Dartmouth, and you were a football player. Yeah, I think you know, like I describe myself as a combination of a math nerd and a football player, right? So I always like problem solving and I always uh, very much appreciated that approach to really everything I did in my life. But I also like team sports and, you know, in some way, shape or form, most of what I did in my business career was around those two things of like solving problems and building teams. And yeah, I, I would say I wear both those hats. I try to wear both those hats almost equally. You know, one of the things you said is you you talked about this existence theorem in mathematics, which <laughs> was was interesting. You said you know it's uh, it's something that helps me kind of clear off whether whether this can be squarely put in a box essentially or or, or not. Yeah. What was what was that about? Well, I think you know I always talk about leading with a point of view, right? So yeah. I think it's important, you know, particularly today. You know, leaders just can't walk in the office every day and just say, I don't know, or it's too hard, or I'm confused, or there's too many data points. So you, you basically take data and you put it into an existence theorem, like globalization is good, or China's important, or digital transformation is important, or this is unimportant, or things like that. So I talk about leaders having a point of view, and I kind of call that an existence theorem where you, you try to determine which things are true. 
right? And which things need to be proven and yeah. which things aren't true, right? And, and that's kind of uh, what I discussed in the book. We'll, we'll get into some of the meat of the book, but there were so many little little things there. I, I love your phrase, CEO in waiting. I guess uh, being a crown prince for too long is kind of frustrating, and you now know what that is like. Yeah, look, I think it's really, you know, regardless of how much you think you can prepare uh, for uh, perfection or for transitions, events take hold. And, and I'd say it's more true today than any other time. You, you know, basically... I went through a very public succession process and literally two days after I took over, the world changed forever. And then we've just had wave after wave of change as time goes on. So I think you basically hire people for how fast they can learn, not what they know, right? And and you hope they just have time to, to find their legs. Well, one of the things you, you said was that you took over a company uh, or inherited from from Jack Welsh, a company obviously with strong culture. And and a lot of people in America, um, well, to that point, your subtitle is what I learned from leading a great American company. There's there's a lot there about America and GE that's uh, that, that I think we could explore. But you said something, you know, we had run out of ideas, you wrote. Um, that's a very strong statement about a company that most people would say are kind of a pinnacle uh, you know, of, of American business culture. Yeah, look, I mean, I think I, my successor was a great leader. Uh, I've always, I, even today, look, re- regardless of where the company is, I always think it's either great or has potential to be great. But but if I said to you, Trent, look, if I said to you, look, here we are in 2001, okay, and we have no digital strategy at all. You know, that's, yet the next 20 years, are only about a digital strategy or are only about a transformation of industry. That's kind of what I meant. It wasn't that, you know, we had great people and, and we were strong and we had a good balance sheet and all those things. But I think, you know, we, we had run a play for so long and really what changed was the world. So that's really what I, what I uh, refer to, you know, spending five years doing Six Sigma Versus spending five years looking at each one of our business lines and saying, okay, this is what we need to insource from a, from a new technology standpoint, or here's how we need to position ourselves in China and things like that. Those are two different management cultures. Yes, they are. And, and I guess I wanted to, to talk at length, obviously, about industrial tech and, and the digital part is, is su- such a big uh, component of that. And certainly for you and for GE, what happened to GE, though, was, and I'm scratching my head as I read this book, which, by the way, I also, uh, I, I, it was a great book because you are honest enough. I mean, of course, you know, uh, you, you know, you you are defending some of the moves you made, but you're honest enough that the reader who's not a CEO can really start empathizing with the role. And one of the things that I scratch my head about when I read the book is, I kind of think you were right so many times. And I sort of don't understand how it didn't kind of, well, on the digital front specifically, I, I don't quite understand why it didn't go your way in the sense that you had hoped. So if I'm correct here, you tried to create this industrial IT powerhouse and you chose the strategy of building it internally. L- let's start with that. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. is that something that you would have done now, or would you have done it differently? 
you know, so just going back to the way you started the question, like I got an email yesterday from a well-known CEO who said, thank you for writing the book. No one ever writes a book about what the job is really like. This is the first time. So just a preamble. Look, you know, it starts with the Marketron, you know, in other words, for us, how the installed base works and, and the service earning stream and revenue, that's existential for a company like GE. So when I started in like 2008 or nine, it was really about protecting, uh, you know, our franchise from a standpoint of how our assets worked in our customers' operations, right? How a jet engine or a gas turbine. And increasingly, it's, it was obvious then, it's even more obvious now, that was about data and analytics and, and, and building, you know, kind of edge technology and software and things like that. So that's kind of how we started. Now, if you go back in those days, we were early and there were really no companies to work with. It wasn't like Microsoft wanted to do it or Salesforce.com. In those days, they were busy doing yeah, I was going to say, everyone says, oh, you should have partnered with Microsoft. And I just had, you know, Shalayan on here. And I'm sure he would have loved to partner with you, except he wasn't around. You know, yeah, there no, wasn't no. a Microsoft for manufacturing exactly. when you were doing this. There was nobody to work with. So we just kind of started building it ourselves. We started building apps that we could sell as part of our service business. And then it, it became apparent we needed to build a platform. We recruited people from Amazon and all the big you know, tech companies. And so by like 2013, 2014, um, you know, we, we had predicts and we were beginning to get customers. And by 2016, look, we had 4,000 customers and, you know, uh, times two developers, right? So, so we were building a franchise. But I think one of the things I talk about in the book is, is we were early, right? And, and sometimes... Sometimes it's as bad to be early as it is to be late. And one of the things that I, I should have given more thought to was what it would take to tread water, right? What would it take to tread water? And in order to tread water, we needed to partner with somebody. We needed to create a different currency and we needed to partner with somebody like a Microsoft by 2015, 16, who would have given us staying power to, to make it to the final point, right? And, and I, I think sometimes about, you know, autonomous and what Mary Barra did at GM of, you know, she owns, I think, they, they own 30% of crews, right? They could never do crews on their own balance sheet, ever. She knew that. That was smart, right? But, but you know, whether it takes a decade or 20 years for autonomous to happen, she's got a marker on the table. And so I think that's one thing legacy companies have to solve for is the impact of time, how to tread water when your investors aren't really aligned with what you have to do, but you know, you know, the thing is existential. So today, Tron, I sit in Silicon Valley. Look, there's a hundred companies trying to get GE's installed base using software, right? Hundreds, hundreds of them. And, and so it's finally here. And, and uh, you know, I think, to a certain extent, we we pulled back too soon because the efficacy of the idea was always quite strong. And when you're a legacy CEO, you've got to figure out a way to tread water. 
to the market. Well, I, I want to talk about startups a little later, but let's let's hit on industrial tech, uh, you know, first because I, I want to I want you to explain how you sort of de- define industrial tech and and w- at least what you did, you know, when you were in the in the hot seat there. I, I noticed, uh, so this is page 65 in your book, you talk about different types of technology. You say vertical, horizontal, and exponential technology, and they have different roles in the corporation. And I sort of get, the, and that's again where I scratch my head because I sort of, it feels like y- you had a grasp on what that was, the organization sort of had a handle on uh, all three of them. How, um, so yeah, so w- what do you think industrial tech means in you know in a company like GE? Yeah, look, I think it's a it's a it's a combination of the use case, which in our case is we we make things and we service things. So understanding factory workflows and how assets operate in in Saudi Arabia or Brazil or things like that. That's our that's our use case, let's say. And then what we did Tron is we we mapped we mapped emerging technologies against those use cases, right? So we mapped uh, robotics, automation, AI, you know, uh, uh, additive manufacturing, and and we kind of say, okay, what do we what do we make? What do we buy? What do we partner in? And then what we try to do is do them horizontally inside the company because, you know, why be a conglomerate unless you can do things. From one division to another, and so the two the two th- places we decided to invest was in you know kind of the analytics around asset performance management services and additive manufacturing uh, on the factory floor and on you know, look robotics. There are better people than we are to do robotics. There are better people than we were to do automation. There are better people, you know. So in other words. We, we had a playing field that we felt played to our strength, which was use case, and could be spread across across the company, right? So, you know, again, I, we may be talking about this later. I think on the service side, on asset performance management, we had the definitive use case, right? And out of manufacturing, if you go back to 2016, we had more parts in production than any other person on the planet, right? So we had the use case. It's funny now, you know, Tron, I, I sat on the board of both Desktop Metal and Form Labs. Look, these companies, they don't even think GE or Hewlett-Packard are competitors. You know, in other words, now I sit on the, now I sit on the other side. It almost hurts my feelings sometimes, you know, cause, <laughs> because they... they I, I love this discussion. Here's like, you know, you, you're kind of the head of the biggest company or you yeah. are the biggest company on the planet in the industrial space and these startups are are, are kind yeah. of not even thinking about you. I sit on my side and I say, we should be able to squash these guys. We, we should be able to, and and on their side, it's now, you know, trying to, so basically that's how I th- thought of industrial tech and that's what we did about it. You know, in the, in the late 1990s, I, re- I was running a healthcare business and it was the ultrasound business was very similar to let's say additive manufacturing. You had a bunch of small players, and over the course of like ten years, we won. Right, GE. We we either acquired or we outcompeted all the small nimble guys. So I always had it in my mind that we could do that. Right when we put our mind to it, but. I'd have to say, sitting on the other side now, that's not the way it's happening. <laughs> so. so- 
Oh, that that's funny. Let's talk about this uh, Diasonics VingMed, the ultrasound yeah. acquisition that was your first acquisition. This takes us all the way back to 1998. Um, yeah. And for me, as a, a you know Norwegian, yeah. it's funny that you describe in the book. This is early in the book, and you say. Uh, you, you know, you you were about to acquire this thing, and you had to fly over there, and you got to their corporate headquarters, and you're like, "I'm, I think I'm in a shed." <laughs> you said you were in a shed. We go to we go to Horton, right? So we go to we go to Oslo, then we drive to Horton. We stay in this little uh, crappy hotel. We go the next morning. I'm with my CFO. We pull up in front of the place, and I say, "We made a mistake. <laughs> we must be lost." But I learned something really important, really important. This is going to sound like a advertising line, but the people were, so, so it was a combination of people from Norway and Israel and Haifa. Right. The people were awesome. Right. And they, you know, the, the Oslo engineers had all been trained in university to be cardiac sonographers. So they were deep domain And Israel was the same way. And over the course of like 20 years, this became probably the best acquisition, you know, I, I ever did. But it certainly didn't start that way. Wow. Well, well, speaking about startups, I mean, you know, when you are a large company, you have all these choices. Obviously, you can kind of like you did the, uh, you know, with uh, with your digital effort, you can incubate it in in house, build it. And it's going to be more expensive, and you know, if you but if you succeed, it's it's you know bred inside, and it follows your culture. And then you can acquire, which you did, and all companies do. And some of them are, you know, some companies are better at acquiring. I mean, it seems to be a, its own skill. Um, so we can talk about that if you want. It seems like GE uh, have, have had you know hits and misses there, but then you can just plain old invest in startups and GE Ventures, which was during your tenure really did that quite successfully. And that was yeah. another head scratcher. Uh, I guess this was after you left, but you know, here we are looking at what the industry, the CVC industry was sort of looking at, you know, a very successful corporate venture fund uh, from the outside. And I knew people in there and they seemed uh, happy enough. You know, I, I didn't have any internal knowledge, but, and then suddenly it gets sold off. Yeah. No, and, look, I think you so really now I, you know, I've, I've kind of had four years a venture and you know there's so much innovation going on I, i don't understand any big company that wouldn't have some tentacles in either boston or new york city or silicon valley just because there's so much going on um you know to your point you need a multitude of strategies uh build or buy or partner because you just don't know when you start you know in other words if you go back to 2010 If I thought we could have successfully acquired a software company, I would have done it. But who would it work for, and how would we measure it, and what would we manage, and how? You know, we we just didn't know what we didn't know. So I, I looked at it and said, "Look, we've got to build some foundational talent first. We've got to build a little bit of foundational capability first, and then decide: do we want to do some acquisitions? Do we want to do we do we want to invest in companies and?" And, and what direction do we want to go? No, and I hear you, but you did do the opposite of what you, uh, I think you didn't write so much about it in the book, but I mean, I know you were in entertainment also at GE, which is astounding to me. But but anyway, you know, Bob Iger at, 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 you know, at Disney did the opposite thing, right? Bought Pixar, they bought, uh, you, you know, Marvel and all of these assets that were 
essentially startups. I mean, they're Hollywood startups, yeah. but they weren't really earning revenue the way an industrial or, or the way a large company would, would kind of calculate revenue. They took massive bets. Uh, I think Disney, so, so again, just, I mean, we're shifting around. By 2015, we acquired uh, ServiceMax. We did, we did three or four acquisitions in software once we had a foundation. And, right. I, and I would say, look, Bob, I think Bob did a great job. And, and did did some a number of things, but um, yeah, no. Look, I think I think uh, you know we pulled the trigger when we when we felt like we had enough capability that we could really run it or add value. But but going back to then to to industrial, I mean, is it is it running a large industrial company? Is it different than than running a Disney or running you know sort of any any other large company? Is it so complicated that you necessarily have to um, have so many more internal tie-ins and you know and, and assurances. Is, is that w- why this kind of acquisition game and and startup game gets complicated, or is there another reason? I think it's a, it's always a I think it's always a look. It's always a complicated balance between and, and I talk now about a. a a big multi-business company, which is what GE was, multi-divisions, things like that. It's between how do you get enough experimentation, right? How do you how do you create small teams that are experimenting and still give it uh, sufficient scale uh, to be uh, um, able to uh, take advantage of your size, right? So that it's not, you know, buried inside a company and it never becomes something that has the potential to scale. So I would say, you know, Amazon does that well. Uh, some of the big, you know, kind of the bigger tech companies are, are beginning to really do that well. But that's the balance you run, which is experimentation on one side, along with, um, you know, I had 45,000 salespeople in 180 countries. That's a huge advantage, right? Most entrepreneurs would kill for that, right? But they don't want... They don't want the complexity. They, they want all the good things and none of the bad things. And the trick when you're CEO of a big, complicated company is how do you how do you maximize the potential without burying people in the bureaucracy? And sometimes well, we do it extremely well. Like I would say, go back to your ultrasound example in Horton. That was an example where we did that extremely well. Life sciences, extremely well. Renewable energy, extremely well, right? Balancing small and large. Digital, not so well. You know, there, there are times when, when we didn't do it well. But does it boil, boil down all the way to, to timing? Because you, you say in your book that knowing what to do is often easier than knowing how to do it. And I guess also knowing when to, to do it. Those, those sort of, uh, you know, the hows and the whens, is, it, they're really much more complicated questions than sort of even just Very sticking much. out a direction and saying, well, you know, it's going to all go digital. You can say what you want, but... You know, in the hot seat, what, what are the decisions you're really making? Very, look, very much. I, I sometimes think, particularly with G Digital, if we had started later, if we had partnered earlier with, with again, like pick a Microsoft or something like that, it'd still be a, a vibrant asset today, right? But we started earlier. We probably did too much alone. And, and that's, that's why it didn't work the way I wanted it to. But you started in 2015. That's... Still, so we started you know, in 2009. Uh, Tron, we started. We started uh, G Digital in 
2000. Oh, okay. It was just that yeah. it, it didn't become a separate unit. So, so yeah. I mean, yes, it's late, but so, I mean, how do you explain that you walked into to to the hot seat and there was no digital strategy to speak of, which you sort of have have implied? It wasn't, it wasn't, why, why did that happen? You know, look, we were a we were a 50 PE company that was 50% financial and 50% old line industrial, right? It wasn't in the dot the dot com bubble burst, and everybody said those are just BS businesses anyhow, right? Not not as good as the insurance business or things like that. So yeah, look, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I, I talk about this, you know, as you know in the book, I'm more critical on myself than I am on anybody else. But I, I just think it's always good. Every company, large and small, has to have a window on the future. And has to, and has to be really thinking very seriously about and I and I see it even today that that lots of companies really don't take uh, seriously all the disruption that's underway. Hmm. What, what has your experience be, uh, been with Hot Seat and being so honest? Has there only been positive response, or or do you feel like opening yourself up in this way? Uh, does it? Uh, I mean, it must hurt a little bit sometimes. I well, mean, sure. you, you know, here's yeah. nobodies who, who are sort of writing things and they suddenly have ammunition because you've told them stuff. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a, um, look, my career didn't end the way I wanted it to. Um, we moved to California. I, I basically just kept my mouth shut for three or four years. Um, but, you know, having people pick apart things that are true is different than letting lies calcify, right? And and when you let lies calcify, it doesn't just hurt me. It hurts thousands of people who who kind of went on the journey with me, who were great executives, who are who are working in other companies today and doing terrifically well. So I, I felt like a certain responsibility. And you know, Tron, there's only one way to tell a complicated story. And that's to tell it completely, right? So I, I had a co-author. She spoke to 75 people. And, and you know, everybody remembers the 70% of every story where they're the hero. And they don't remember the 30% where they were the jerk. And she made me confront, you know, the times when I was a jerk or did things wrong or, or things like that. So, you know, it's, it's not that I'm replacing – it's not that, like, I'm replacing – a narrative that's correct, right? I'm, I'm putting out there a story that is more complete and has a little bit of context to it. Hmm. Well, I wish more business books were a little, a little bit like that because I find that I, when I pick up business books, and usually I don't pick up the new ones because I, you know, they they get old so quickly. So I pick them up, you know, in like recycled old books. But I don't keep them very long because yeah. the success stories, one, they don't last. You know, so it's written as a success story. Yeah, and then the company doesn't last. So then, you know, what did you learn? I think we need to write different business books, right? I mean, have you thought about this? Are you yeah, going to no, write no, more of that? Been, uh, I say that in the book, which I, I'm kind of like you. I, I read military history. I read a lot, but I don't read a lot of business books. Let's take take wind take wind energy. So ostensibly, that would be a huge success that I helped lead, right? We went from zero. The business today is like $20 billion or something like that. But the market went from like 80 megawatts to 800 gigawatts, right? It's not like, it's not like, you know, you would have had to have been 
lame to not have a business that just grew immensely. So is that good management? Is that good luck? Is that good timing? Business is complicated, right, in that in that regard. I, I would say the best teamwork and the best leadership and the best decision-making in my tenure was made during the financial crisis, right, by the team that worked on that from, let's say, 2008 to 2010, yet nobody was out there saying, well done, guys. <laughs> you know, thanks a lot. <laughs> you guys are really doing great. They were saying, you assholes, you know, what? why are you in financial services? So that's the nature of business. You know, it's it's a... Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's... Iger. Well, you... when, when Iger bought Marvel, nobody sat around and said, brilliant idea. They said, you paid $5 billion for what? And now people look and say, you know what, Bob, you're a genius. And he was, and he, and he is, you know, so... You, you don't can't write so much. Uh, yeah, you, you don't write so much about this, but I'm 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 just kind of curious if I mean not all of us are are executives at that at the level or will become even though you know some people might aspire to at the level where you were. But what are some of the more uh down to earth lessons that any senior manager in 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 an industrial business should take to heart from what you learned? I mean the distinctive role of kind of technology and how to go about handling it in whatever role you have are there some things that you learned about you know the staff that you were managing some particularly good things that happened you yeah. mentioned that you know the the crisis brought out some of these good good aspects but there there is actually there there is a need for for advice on all of this and i i fear um that you know today's business schools they don't necessarily have all the data on on what the best practices should be anymore because it's not I think that's shared right. always. Look, I think that's right. Um, let me answer. You know, so if you read the book, I'd say what you pick out is good leaders absorb fear, right? So, in a, in a crisis mode, look, some people are fear accelerators and some people are fear absorbers. You, you need to kind of be able to be a fear absorber to show people uh, the right way. You got to make you got to make decisions. You got to invest to realize the future, right? So, I think if you're running a company out there, you know, you 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 need professional managers, but you need to pick out the people that are willing to invest, that are willing really willing to kind of say, we ought to do this product or we ought to launch this this uh, this app. You you need to pick those people out of the pile. So you need people that can kind of see around corners and, and that can invest. You need people that connect, you know, and it, look, I sit in Silicon Valley, the, the labor arbitrage is brutal today, right? People can find so many jobs. There's, there's no amount of stock options. That's too many. So if you don't have a personal connection with the people that you work with and trust them and they trust you, you just have no success pattern. Um, and you need to be able to, solve problems and drive change, right? So if you if you want to drive globalization or things like that. So those are the things that are hard to teach in business school. Now, if, if I go to maybe the nature of your podcast and things like that, my experience at Stanford is these kids don't know anything at all about manufacturing, nothing, zero, right? There's no context for it. It's not appreciated. Yet, if you think about some of the new digital models that are underway, if you think about onshoring, if you think about some of the new technology that's underway, you know that's that's um, that's what really needs to be taught. I 
there's a small company I just invested in that does robotics for kind of uh, sorting of waste, right? So I went to a dump in San Jose the other day, and it was brutal, man. It was These were the worst jobs I've seen in my entire career. And you basically say that without robotics, pick, being able to pick the right shape and the right package, a recycling future has no way, you know, in other words, we are never going to solve this recycling uh, problem ever, right? It's, it's all lip service. So, you know, having people that are willing to kind of roll their sleeves up and solve some of these problems, I, I worry a little bit about that. Not everything is going to be software, right? Some of the stuff is going to be physical space. Yeah, so I mean, there is that aspect of, of manufacturing, right? But the, but there is also the the aspect that you just mentioned that technology is moving in in an astounding, not just astounding pace, but also an, on an astounding scale. Yeah. How do you explain this time lag of perception, both among the elite and whether it's business schools or politicians, even uh, or, or software engineers uh, for that matter? Why don't more people realize that the big opportunity now lies in this wide industrial space, the space that you know so well? Yeah, look, I think it's completely true. I think it's going to be accelerated by labor shortages and by, uh, you know, what I would call reducing global supply chains to being more local. So it's all going to be accelerated. I think enough. Uh, a lot of it's driven by the fact that people don't like to see things for themselves, right? It's one thing to talk about robotics or additive manufacturing. It's another thing to see it in practice. It's another thing to talk to a line operator and, and work a shift on your manufacturing floor to see, you know, how does a how does an application like Tulip change the way a frontline operator does their work? You know, we do a sales. You know, think about. Like, um, like I'm an old salesman. So I, I, I saw a salesforce.com application in 2004. Everybody says, give me that, right? And salespeople have a loud voice inside every company. And so, you know, salesforce.com becomes a huge company. Now, I look at Tulip, you know, 20 years later, and if you're a frontline operator, Tulip feels what Salesforce felt if you're a sales rep. Yet nobody's yet screaming, I've got to do this because frontline manufacturing people have no voice, right? Finance people have a voice. Salespeople have a voice. And, and I think more CEOs or ops leaders need to create this voice for the people that are doing the work or the products or the manufacturing sites that have to do the work. And so, you know, the CIO is not going to get it done. You got to have, you got to have frontline people that know how to get it done. So, you know, when I see Tulip, I say, interesting idea. It reminds me of Salesforce in 2004. Now, Salesforce is a $250 billion market cap company. So everybody would love that. But, but it's, you know, visualization, it's SaaS, it's got all these advantages. Well, Jeff, I mean, there's something to it, right? I, I kind of say these days that software for the last 30 years has been for people who are sitting down, right, and, yeah. and looking at a screen. Uh, so it's kind of white collar, essentially, you know, it's a, exactly. that's w where we've invested all the dollars, but, but now maybe we should do 30 years of it for people who are standing up or are on the move, not, not because they, you know, are kind of like jet setting on the move, but because they literally, you know, in order to carry out their day's work, 
they don't have the luxury of sitting in this nice office where you know I'm, I'm in this nice office space right now. You are in uh, you, you know a very comfortable space. We have the luxury of sitting down and you know have these big screens and big processors, but that's not the reality of today's world. Completely worker. agree. Completely agree. So think about this, right? So I, I probably implemented, but I'm not alone. Tens of billions of dollars of ERPs, of CRMs, things like that. I can't tell you whether they paid off or not. You know, in other words, they're all statements of record. You needed to do them for compliance. Who knows if they ever paid off, right? All of the manufacturing technologies have a payback. You know, they, they, they all are going to drive quality productivity. They're going to hit somebody's ledger. But, but they just don't, they just lack a consistent voice of somebody saying, I need this. If I get it, I can improve the operations. Here's the payback. Let's go. And it can't be the CIO, I don't think. So what is the ideal picture kind of moving moving on uh, coming years? Uh, the ideal frontline operations platform, what, what, would it, what would it do? What would it enable in, in your mind? Mm, Josh, so I mean, there's so many vectors to kind of what you what you say. I think there's super low cost robotics that allow it to get into places it can't get to today. It's it's visualization. You know, MES systems are typically too heavy to really create the kind of individual kind of uh, metrics that people need. So I think it's kind of making it big MES systems more flexible and user-friendly. It's putting in as many things closer to the customer as you can through additive manufacturing. So I, I think there's a huge future uh, for that. And it's kind of workforce training that takes a generation of people and gives them both a, a, a physical perspective and enough digital comfort that they can utilize these new technologies that are uh, coming through. It's computer vision that allows high-speed manufacturing to be done with better quality, you know, so that's a combination of AI and machine learning. So look, it's all the, it's all the big stuff. It's AI, it's machine learning, it's, it's additive manufacturing, it's uh, application software, it's automation, but it's making it all kind of more flexible and lower cost so that you can have, you know, facilities with hundreds of workers, not thousands of workers close to the customer. But I like the way that you speak about technologies and then you say workforce because th there's a bit of a discussion now on, on this middle skills or the, or the skills gap or skills challenge in, in manufacturing. Right? Many reports out on, on this. How are you going to train and retrain so many yeah. people? How do you think training needs to change to accommodate this? I mean, we, we certainly can't put them in college and you, you, certainly not four-year colleges. And the traditional answer was, you know, community colleges, two years, associate degrees. But I mean, is the answer to put people, you know, or, you know, again, in a classroom, uh, you know, on a desk and, and learn or, or are there other ways now that we can still get that kind of learning done? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably other people who are smarter about it than I am, but I'm a big believer in ecosystems of high school, junior college, manufacturing companies that are willing to share talent. You know, the last probably four or five factories we built in the U.S. were all in college towns, 
right? And it wasn't because we necessarily wanted college kids, but we found that the high schools and college towns tend to be tended to be better than the other high schools around the country, right? So they had better math scores. So we could we could recruit out of high school kids that had better math. So it was Auburn, Alabama, West Lafayette, Indiana, different places like that. And we were building factories with 400 people. And you would get them right into an apprenticeship program or you'd get them right into some kind of uh, a community college and give them a sense and, and get them trained on additive manufacturing and quality systems and, and things like that. So it, it's, it's, uh, you've got to be very, I'd say, specific about the work you're trying to do. And then I, I'm, a, I'm a complete believer that we're going to enter into an era of labor shortage uh, pretty quickly here. Just be, you know, it's a complicated subject, but I think companies need to be thinking about you know who's going to do the making and how do you develop them from scratch. Well, so then that brings me to kind of small questions of the future, right? What what, what is a factory going to look like in the future, and what is an industrial uh, powerhouse uh, going to look like? Will there ever be a digital powerhouse like the one you? attempted to create or will that actually be a myriad of these startups that that have no respect for the old behemoths <laughs> i think it's gonna be uh so again i think it's a combination so i think smaller facilities close to markets where manufacturing and marketing actually get spoken about in the same sense right those are going to be the way of the future and they're going to be powered by two or three of the technologies that we've talked about today, not all of them, but two or three of the technologies we talked about today, whether it's advanced robotics or, 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 um, you know, uh, different elements that are, that are kind of in, incorporated in the wave of technology and how it can be applied. So smaller facilities, closer to markets, two or three technologies that can be perfected, and where the plant manager is actually a digital native or is not intimidated by wanting to see how the work gets done, right? So that's, um, look, I, I think you've got an Amazon and, and let's say Tesla, CEOs that believe dramatically in forward and backward integration, right? So you've got the next wave, you know, you know basically trying to like, like I grew up in an era where you deverticalized everything, right? You, you let suppliers do everything. You let them do all your IT, all your manufacturing. You sold through distribution. Everything was deverticalized. The next wave of entrepreneurs, they are vertical integration guys. They're like, I want to do this. I want to do that. I don't want anybody else to make money other than me, right? So that's going to be one wave of where technology is going to take place. We're still going to have really good, you know, I think you can't be in the automotive industry without being respectful of manufacturing. You can't be in the aviation industry without being respectful of manufacturing. There's certain industries where the product and the process are the same thing. And those guys are always going to be really great manufacturing uh, companies. And then there's going to be startups, right? And, and, and they're going to be uh, trying to disrupt as best they can. So it's a combination, but the next generation of, um, of let's say winners, and again, I, I put Amazon, they don't want to share any dollar of margin with anybody. 
And so that's going to drive an investment strategy that's kind of consistent with that. Well, as you said, leaders must master kind of these conflicting principles, right? That's towards the end of the book. You, you, you start talking about how you kind of need to be both big and fast and global and local. I mean, all of these dichotomies, uh, th that doesn't really make, in traditional business books, you do one thing really well and you stop doing the other stuff, right? Look, that that doesn't work anymore. The was about the or, right? You're, I'm going to do this or this. The CEOs I bring into my class at Stanford, they talk about the and, right? They talk about, uh, we have the CEO of Peloton, you know, and he says, look, I want to I want to make the bikes and be a content company and be an entertainment company and be an exercise company. And and he tells a story of saying, look, at, at every step of the way, the venture capitalist said, don't do that. Don't buy a bike company. Don't do your own content, right? Pick a, pick a spot, right? Pick a spot. He said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick all the spots. I'm going to do, and so I think there's there's a, something about being a systems leader and focusing on the and and not the or. I want to give you the last word, but uh, in your book, towards the end, you talk about life after G, and you say it's possible to be happy even when the things don't work out the way you planned. And I find that to be a very powerful message, especially when coming from you. Uh, what's your advice to people on, on happiness? It's kind of a weird way to end an industry podcast, but it seems like you've earned it. Yeah. What, so what can you tell us, um, look, my dad worked for GE. I worked for GE for 35 years. I, I love the company and I love the people I worked with and I did my best every day. Yet with all that, there are some people that blame me for a lot of things associated with the company. And so that's heartbreaking, Right. That's, that's, that's heartbreaking, but I'm not the only person that's gone through stuff like that. And the decision you have to make is, are you just going to keep, are you going to quit and just go into hiding? Or are you going to keep on trying? Right. And so I kept trying, I kept trying to add value. I kept trying to help people like Max and the time. Uh, and, and I think that's the message. The message is, Sometimes, despite best intentions, intentions, things don't work the way you want them to. But you just can't quit. You, 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 you can't quit. You got to keep trying and, and find new avenues to add value. Jeff, it's been uh, fascinating, and I knew it would be fascinating. I, I read your book. I, I, I loved it, I have to say. It was really, really powerful messaging in there and, and deeply felt, I think, uh, both emotions and analytical strategies to handle a bunch of different things, whether you're in industrial tech or, or otherwise. I thank you so much for giving uh, this interview. Thanks, Sean. Great to be with you. You have just listened to episode 42 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trulane Unheim. The topic was business beyond buzzwords. Our guest was Jeff Immelt, venture partner at NEA and former CEO of General Electric. In this conversation, we talked about Jeff Immelt's new book, Hot Seat, running a top-tier manufacturing business, industrial tech, the impact of globalization, workforce training, and how industry will evolve in the next decade. My takeaway is that Jeff Immelt's brave, honest, and wise book is unusually revealing and instructive. Jeff has shared not only how lonely it is at the top, 
but seemingly how few big choices and at times how many smaller choices you have at any given time. His struggles with industrial tech are near timeless. Nobody has all the answers in terms of getting organizational implementation of exponential tech right, especially not if your organization is the size of GE. I was struck by the implication for leaders. Be vulnerable or risk not only your own happiness, but those of all your co-workers. Immelt's struggle was to digitize GE, a behemoth in transition. He chose to build an in-house capacity at great cost and with mixed results. But how many other options were there on the table? Hindsight is 2020. As Immelt points out, nowadays, low-code and no-code systems such as Tulip are about to transform frontline operations in ways we can only start to imagine. The promise is empowerment of workers and immense productivity gains from freeing up the human mind. Our challenges might at times seem or indeed be smaller in scale, but might feel equally overwhelming. Good to know then that folks at the top struggle as well. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 21, The Future of Digital in Manufacturing with Shalayan R. Khan, VP of Manufacturing Industry at Microsoft. Episode 32, Covering Industrial Innovation with Amy Feldman, Senior Editor at Forbes. Or episode 27, Industry 4.0 Tools with Carl B. March, Director of Industry 4.0 at Stanley Black & Decker. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter.